welcome everyone to a very special episode looking back over an incredible year. Stay tuned. This is the Safety Wire Podcast. host of the Safety Wire podcast. It has been one incredible year, only made possible by the wonderful guests who have shared their passion and knowledge, and also by everyone who has listened and shared the episodes. The thing I love most about the episodes is that not every guest has been directly tied to aviation safety. However, their expertise directly impacts so much of what we do every day keeping those aircraft flying. Today, I will be taking a look back at the episodes and wisdom that has been shared throughout 2023 But before we can get into that, a big episode like this needed a sponsor. So I'd like to thank Advanced Aircraft Research for sponsoring today's episode by sending over some of the best swag I've ever seen. AAR handles pre-buys, record audits, digital record creation, reconstruction. If it's research, they do it. So thank you to AAR and your wonderful team for the sponsorship today. Now I know what you're all thinking, enough talking, and let's see what we've accomplished so this year. you starting out in aviation with the military, progressing yourself through your career now where you currently see yourself with AOG, how would you describe the safety culture from when you first entered into aviation compared to what you're seeing nowadays in our industry? Sure. Well, when you look at the military and you look at what we're doing now in the civilian world, there's a huge difference. And I think most people who've done that transition can see that. Um, you know, for a lot of the Air Force veterans, you'll understand that as a crew chief, you're considered APG all-purpose general. You know, you're you're the master of none, but you're the jack of all trades. Um, you know, but when you look at the civilian side, you're given a license and you, you run with it. You know, we're doing, you know, everything you can think of and in between, you know, small, big, you know, we're engine run and taxing airplanes all the time. I mean, there's, there's a huge change of um, how we're qualified to do tasks. Um, and so that's what I see between the military and the civilian sector. But uh, coming out of the military, you're kind of ingrained with this safety culture, um, you know, keeping track of your tools, you know, making sure that everything you're doing is very detail oriented. Yeah, that integrity and accountability piece that they, you know, hardcore ingrained to us while we're in the military, for sure. I can definitely see how that would be beneficial with AOG. We don't know how good we have it in aviation, especially those who have always been in aviation. I work in a lot of different industries, law enforcement, firefighting, uh, even done work with investment banking, things in big government program management teams. And and the rest of the world does not understand what we understand. Um, And that is that we are going to have to continuously fight the battle for safety and quality, uh, and that we do that by recognizing the shortcomings that we have and testing things to correct them, right? And, you know, I could give you 50 examples of that in aviation. The rest of the world does not think that way. They think one of two ways. Uh, Either they're locked into the status quo, and sometimes that's for financial reasons, sometimes that's for careerism reasons, Uh, Sometimes that's just because people don't like change. Uh, Or the second reason is that they they have traditions in their own industry, healthcare, for example. The gap between a surgeon and his surgical team um, can be that small or it can be miles wide. There's no standardization, very few use checklists. And in spite of the fact that 
that there's been tons of evidence that it would improve outcomes dramatically, they refuse to adopt it because it's too hard for them to, uh, to make the change. So we're lucky in aviation, really, really lucky in aviation. Absolutely. And I so think those, those patient zeros that you mentioned, I think the supervisors that we currently have really need to tie in to, because I think a lot of times those people are getting congratulated for getting a four hour task done in two hours and not asking, why did it get done in two hours? Not investigating why it is it's just, hey, that's my, that's my best mechanic. They get work done super fast. Yeah. yeah. And I think a lot more needs to be done on the supervision side. I think, you know, what you just described there is the, the natural tension between operational readiness and safety, right? Mm -hmm. So they should never be going head to head, right? Yes, the schedule is important. Yes, the customer should get off on time and land on time. Those are, those are outcomes that are clearly visible and often vocal, right? Mm -hmm. If they don't take off on time, somebody's going to hear about it. If they land late, somebody's going to hear about it. And so those are naturally the things we tend to lean toward. And then when somebody points out that, well, it's important that they get there at all, right? Mm -hmm. What if the airplane came apart? They go, ah, that never happens. Business aviation is the safest mode of transportation in the world. We didn't get there by thinking that way. And that's what we have to come back to. The reason aviation is the safest mode of transportation in the world is because those that came before us didn't think like we do now. You know, are you seeing more organizations step up to do it as a best practice or more of them step up uh, as possibly a mandate to operate their business with certain companies or governments or other countries, or organizations? What are you seeing as a leading motivation to move towards an ISO or an AS standard certification? You know, what's interesting is the uh, AS standards, the certification uh, quantities over the last a uh, few years during COVID and, and through now, um, the, the quantity of companies getting AS certified in the U.S. has, has jumped drastically, um, uh, far exceeding ISO 9001 or, or, or some of the, the other um, ISO standards. And there's, there's three reasons companies get certified. One is your customers requiring it, it's pushing you. <laughs> says you have to. Sure. Um, the second reason is you want to use it as a tool to gain new market segments. You want to get into the aerospace uh, markets and you want to uh, use that certification to help you open more doors. Or, um, you, you know, the third reason is that there are leadership teams, uh, owners of companies that realize and recognize that, you know, a, a management system, a formal management system is going to help me be better, have fewer headaches, fight, fight less fires. And, and they see that as a valuable tool to push the organization to be a better company. And so those, those, are, the, those are the three reasons we see companies get certified and, and every, or a combination thereof. And um, sometimes you get companies kicking and screaming and it's always fun to see um, when a management team, you know, the light bulb goes off because they were forced to get certified and they didn't like it or didn't want to. And, and then, you know, years down the road, they realize, oh my gosh, this is the best thing that's happened to this company. And we, you know, we, we realize now the benefits of it and, you know, hadn't before. And so those are, uh, you know, always interesting stories. Um, you don't necessarily like to hear it other, other than the fact that, that management's come around to understanding the value and the benefit um, 
after the fact, and sometimes it's hard to, to quantify or communicate in the dollar and cents terms or in the time manage, time uh, you know, wasteful terms or the cost of poor quality terms uh, to justify you know, getting certified or, or just even being compliant, using it as a tool for, to, to improve the business. Yeah, I always uh, associate a new quality or safety practice as, you know, when you're trying to tell your kids to try a new food and they're kicking and screaming, they don't want to try it. And then the next thing you know, it's their favorite food on the menu. And, you know, you've won them over. Just takes time. Just takes time. How have you seen the safety culture of aviation change during your time in this industry? You know, and if I could broaden that out just a little bit more, I normally wouldn't. I usually stick this uh, just with safety, but I want to broaden this out into security as well. Given your position, your history, how have you seen aviation safety and security evolve over the years? Yeah, for, for me, Tim, you know, it's it's definitely evolved uh, with, with that very focus, uh, more on safety, more on security. Uh, the TSA, for example, there's a lot more that they talk about with the insider threat issue. Um, mm-hmm. There's actually some legislation, some proposed legislation that's out there now with respect to TSA, uh, that or Department of Homeland Security, I guess, is a, a better um, organization to use that, um, you know, would basically have uh, provide or ensure that those employees, airport employees are screened uh, that much more attentively, for lack of a better term, and mm-hmm. basically all the entry and exit portals uh, into the secure area of the airport uh, are in essence solidified from that perspective. So that's coming. Uh, you have your typical, you know, part 139 requirements uh, for the airport, right? The, the runway environment, uh, we have that annual uh, certification that uh, certification officer that comes out uh, from the regional office, and they continue to mm-hmm. um, work with us there. Um, that not not much has changed there. There's a little bit more emphasis on uh, training records and that sort of thing that we've noticed over the last few years. So we've definitely been uh, harping our our guys, and they do a great job. Uh, we've had no no records or findings, if you will, and they do a fantastic job of their record keeping. But we've just noticed that little extra dotting of the I, crossing of the T, that mm-hmm. the certification officer will, will uh, pinpoint maybe a section of pavement that maybe in years past they would, because it's not a highly traveled location, they may have kind of glossed over, but now they're actually pointing and saying, yeah, you need to address that as part of your AIP or perhaps the bipartisan infrastructure law, the bill legislation that was passed. Um, and speaking of bill, you know, we had the $20 billion that was passed for airports, which is a nice down payment, I like to say, and I think and industry organizations will, will say the same thing. And it's a, it's a nice win for the airports. It, it is a down payment because you, you talk to, you, or not talk to, but you hear from the industry experts, the organizations like AAA and ACI that airports across the nation need, need about 115 billion with a B as in boy or Bravo <laughs> airport term, uh, 15, $115 billion over the next five years, just with infrastructure needs alone. Uh, and that's, you know, not necessarily addressing, you know, tower relocations and, and those sorts of things, which we're right now uh, looking at as well. We have, we'll probably have one of the oldest if not the oldest air traffic control tower in the country. So that's a need for us as well. So looking at what that really means, um, there's been a huge focus from the FA on runway incursion mitigations, a lot of mm-hmm. focus on, you know, uh, uh, runways and taxiway intersections and making sure those alignments are more than 90 degrees, that a pilot needs to make at least two turns before uh, entering the runway environment. And we were actually, we have two hotspot projects we're working on now to address safety 
uh, concerns, not that they've been issues, but just concerns, potential mm -hmm. concerns down the road with respect to airfield geometry. And some of our pavements are within uh, ILS areas, if you will. So, for example, so that those are some of the things that we're addressing. So we see that we see that from the TSA, as I talked about with uh, beyond their traditional screening requirements, you know, making sure that guns and drugs through checkpoints and again, not not too big of an issue here, hardly at all. Uh, but the, the insider threat, I think, is something that um, we've been seeing more and more. And then lastly, I would say on the environmental side, Tim, uh, been a, there's been a huge emphasis on construction projects, any construction projects over an acre that you disturb, you basically have to notify the Ohio EPA uh, for that. Uh, they check, obviously, the stormwater pollution prevention. There's a plan you have to put in place that ties into water quality. They've also been paying closer attention to fueling, proper fueling of tankers that fuel the airplanes. Um, obviously, OSHA is a, is a big concern with PPE going into confined spaces, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, noise and air quality uh, comes into mind as well. So and you then, guys touched on motivation a little bit already, but you know you've dedicated your careers and lives to fitness and self improvement at the you know the level you guys are at. It's more than just a normal job. It's all encompassing. You guys kind of live that lifestyle all the time. It's not for show. You know, where do you find your motivation to not only, you know, do your nine to five, basically, but to continuously improve and better yourselves and making this your entire lifestyle? So I, I would I would kind of direct motivation to discipline. Okay. I think discipline has to be in place because motivation is always up and down and left and right. So if you're only like hoping for motivation, then you're never going to show up on the days you don't feel like it. Discipline becomes a part of your DNA, a part of your habits and your identity. And so when the discipline is in place, you show up even on the days you don't feel like it because it's a part of who you are and how you identify yourself. And then like it really, you know, when, when we look at it from a faith standpoint, it's also how God identifies you. Like mm -hmm. he, he gave you this temple, this body and your faith and the choices that you make every single day are up to us. Like we glorify him by taking care of ourselves. And that starts with this. Um, bring this full circle for us. So aviation obviously is an industry of travel, uh, but our infrastructure that we all rely on right now also relies on continuous travel. We have pilots, cabin crew, our maintenance technicians. We have mobile maintenance technicians all throughout the country that do a lot of travel and they work some crazy hours. You know, um, I'm, I got a few questions pertaining to them. Per, first up, fatigue. You know, it's a huge risk factor in aviation, multiple studies, safety directives, mandated time for rest. Talk to me about how much sleep we should be getting and why that's important. And also the adverse effects if we're not maintaining that over time. Yeah, I mean, sleep, as far as as far as far our health and fitness goes, sleep is, is so critical. I mean, for I think people vary a little bit. Like, I love sleeping. Sleeping is, like, my favorite. I, I want to sleep, like, a long time. So, for me, it's, it's eight hours, and I think, in general, the recommendation is seven to eight hours. But then there are people that are built a little differently that can function still well on, like, Micah can function very well on less sleep than I can. He's okay. more like a five to six hours. So, 
I think it's first like knowing like and you you can when you start getting more in tune with your body you're going to know if you're a seven to eight hour person or if you're a five to six hour person but it is it really is absolutely critical and I know sometimes especially in in a world like that where there's a lot of travel and there's not you know you can have inconsistency with your schedules it may be it may be hard to be able to do that consistently I would just say tr tr try your best you know and and even naps are really, I mean, if it's a nap, those actually can be very beneficial too. When we don't get enough sleep, I mean, it, it has such a negative impact on everything. Our, you know, our, especially our brain function, our, our cognitive abilities. Um, you know, if you're talking about safety, it's like, that's, that's a huge risk of when our brains are not operating at, operating at full function. Um, and the other thing is just our, emotional stability and our, our ability to handle emotional things that come up when you're tired hmm. you are far more likely to have an outburst you're far more likely to have like a more aggressive response to things than when you're well rested so it's it's not even i mean for a fitness purposes even just for weight loss it's actually mm -hmm. really critical for the sleep is when our bodies recover after we train but it's also really important for for just weight loss and our hormone um, how our hormones stay balanced so i think it all kind of pours over and it's often overlooked like even in our world people are like train 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 i'm gonna sleep three hours and i'm gonna get up and work out super hard every single day and it's like okay but when your body gets run down you're just breaking things down and breaking things down and you're not even getting that time for repair so mm -hmm. it's extremely important i would say in general it's a six to eight hour time frame that is the best and i would just say i know that's not possible all the times but but any time that it is possible, just now you have been a technician and now you've evolved yourself to a business owner. You are running JP Aerotechnics. How um, how are you viewing safety different when you were a technician versus now as a business owner who's responsible for other people who work beneath you? Or work well, with you, um, well, first of all, I'm still a technician. I still turn a wrench. Uh, I own the company, mm -hmm. but I'm still very much an owner operator. And so I'm very much in the trenches of my business. You know, the business doesn't run without me turning a wrench, just like it doesn't without my guys running, turning a wrench. Um, and so I'm very conscious of the, uh, the amount of safety that we need in our culture. Right. So, mm -hmm. um, before when I was a mechanic, I kind of took safety as like, I just want to go home with my fingers, you know, and have my eyes working and, you know, stuff like that. You know, you come in with two hands, you want to leave with two hands, right? Mm -hmm. um, but now as a business owner, um, the the aspect, like the idea has changed quite a bit because now I pay workman's comp and I pay insurance and I do all that coverage and I've got to make sure that those guys get home, not just me, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so safe, safety is much a much bigger idea. Doing AOG, you've got to be super conscious of time on work, you know, how long you were you driving, how long you've been working, should you be running these engines when you're this tired? Should you be operating the system when you're this tired? Not only that, you know, you've got to do a lot of risk mitigation. How long have you been awake in the last seven days? You know, were you averaging four hours of sleep a week or a day? Um, or were you, did you get a good night rest last night? Have you eaten today? You know, how are your nutrition levels going as you're moving and operating, taxiing that aircraft around the ramp? There's a lot of things you've got to look at as not only the technician, but as the owner or as the lead or, or, you know, any situation like that, you've, you've got to, you've got to really hone it in. And for the technician, you've got to kind of know your limits, right? 
you've got to know when to tell the guy that you're working for, hey, man, I'm done. I'm exhausted. You know, I cannot come out here and safely do this job. You've got to know your limits and really understand that you have a say. You know what I'm saying? You have a say in when something's going to happen because the last thing your, your boss wants is for you to mess something up because you're exhausted. The other thing is they don't want you to get hurt. You know what I'm saying? And so if you know you've hit your limit on work, work time as a technician, you need to, you need to stand up and say, Hey man, I'm done for the day. I'm going to hit the hotel. I'm going to get some rest and I'll be back tomorrow. I know you and I have over the years had many conversations on, you know, skill sets and things like that. And, you know, how to build up a great EHS manager. I mean, being in the field, you bringing people into the field. I think we've had some great conversations on that. What are you as a recruiter? What kind of skill sets, credentials are you are you seeing that not only are companies requiring, but what are they really wanting in an EHS manager or anybody in this field? Well, I'd say across the board, um, employees in general, in every job, uh, they want more money for easier jobs. That's everybody. Um, within EHS, what I have found is um, companies want uh, people who are truly focused on safety and typically um, increasing safety within a manufacturing environment. And that involves being on the floor, um, walking around, uh, identifying potential risks, and really focusing on that behavioral-based safety. What I have found, there's a lot of EHS folks um, that want to get out of the plant. Uh, they want to make sure that they're on the computer, uh, filling out paperwork, saying, look, I'm compliant, but I'm not in the plant. Um, I was working on a role uh, for a plant EHS manager focused on keeping people safe. And the first question the person said was, uh, can this be done remotely? I was like, I don't know. I guess you could call the plant and say, hey, Ted, you got your eye protection on? You do? Good. Get Billy on the phone. I don't know. And I'm sure there are definitely regional roles where it's more compliance. But what I'm seeing, um, the industry needs more hands-on people, um, or even if you are that higher level that you're located in the plant on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, you're going to see things that the operators are never going to see. You're going to see things that the plant manager is never going to see. And it takes that expertise to, to identify a potential risk and say, hey, this hasn't happened yet, but it's a matter of time. Someone's going to trip, someone's going to fall, someone's sleeve is going to get stuck, uh, someone's going to get hurt or die if we don't do something now. And so that's what's lacking um, are those pe people that are really creative and can identify those risks before something happens, not just react, um, hey, sorry, somebody died. We need to now do something about it. Like, hey, did anybody see that a month ago, a year ago, five years ago? Could we have prevented mm -hmm. that? And that's, uh, that's what most companies want. And unfortunately, I, I find a lot of, of uh, paper pushers. Hey, I've got all my paperwork filled out and I'm done for the day. I'm going to leave at three. You know, it. There, there is a certain part of the job where you got to write the policies, you got to write the procedures, you got to build the training. But if you lose that face-to-face -face aspect where you actually have a relationship with those on the floor, where you have that open and honest discussion with them, you're never going to find out what's going on on the floor. Any safety manager can go audit, but if you have that that relationship built with them, you're going to get the, the great feedback you need to really build a, a, a true well-run safety program. All right. So some organizations don't believe they have the budget for SMS. Should funding be a deterrent to implement SMS? Funding should not be a deterrent to implement SMS. I can actually do SMS on an Excel spreadsheet. 
So Thank if you. I can do it on an Excel spreadsheet or Microsoft Word document, um, you know, all the fancy tools, Tim, are, are great and they do help. I'm not going to lie. However, it, it literally does not have to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, all right. Not Next one. All, SMS is not mandatory. Why should I bother with it now? I love this question, especially for operators in the United States. For those organizations that have already implemented an SMS, which is ICAO Annex 19 for the most part. Um, so if you're with any standard setting organization out there, that's ICAO Annex 19. Um, the FAA SMS is different. And so it's different language. It's different requirements. The system is holistic. It's all connected. And it's going to take some time to not only develop and change your manual, but to change your processes to reflect those changes and to change the language that you're using. So um, it is, you know, I would tell you that you're somewhere between 60 to 70% of the way there with ICAO Annex 19, but you do still mm -hmm. have some uplift to do. And then it's gonna take some time to make all those changes, especially since majority of SMS offers don't conform to the FAA expectations today. So that's gonna be a big, a big issue in our industry. I have enjoyed every minute of producing this podcast. And I'm looking forward to continuing our look at aviation safety from every possible angle. If you have any ideas for content or a possible guest, please let me know. As always, I appreciate your support. So like, subscribe, and share. Have a blessed Christmas, happiest of holidays, and I will see you in the new year.